We are walking into Easter week, Holy Week. It starts with Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, and it's like a parade. People are laying down palm branches, which signify victory. They're shouting, Hosanna, save us. The people are saying, a king is riding into town, and he's gonna win a war. He's gonna win a war for us. Now, they have a human idea about that, but what we know on the other side of Easter is that Jesus has not come to win a war. He has come to win the war against sin and death and the powers of hell. Jesus has come to win the war for you and for me. This is why we celebrate Easter, because Jesus is back from the dead. My grandma used to always say, honey, we celebrate Easter every day, and we do at this church. We just go a little extra this time of year because Jesus is alive. If you're new to the story, you can read it in John chapter three, the most famous verse in the Bible, where Jesus is having a conversation with this skeptical Pharisee, and he tells him, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is the gospel. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through who? Him, through Jesus. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict, okay, listen to this. Light has come into the world. That's not a vague spiritual statement, that's Jesus talking about himself. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of the light, because their deeds were evil. We're getting right to it today. This passage, what it illuminates to us is the truth of the gospel, that God sent his son Jesus here not to condemn us, but to save us. The war has been won, but it also points to a reality that there is still a battle that is waging for you, for your neighbor, for your friend, for your coworker, a battle for your soul. Because we get a choice in this whole thing and where we put our faith. Jesus welcomes anybody and everybody that would put their faith in him. And there is a battle. He points to a very real present darkness that we as human beings are prone to be drawn into. And today I wanna talk about that. I wanna talk about the battle. I wanna make sure when we're going into Easter week and inviting people that we're on the same page about this whole Jesus thing. And I wanna make sure that you guys are aware of the battle that is waging. This is not a game. Showing up here for church this is not an endless self-help seminar to try to help you become a better person with Christian karaoke and some teaching from a cool rabbi from 2,000 years ago. This is the rallying point of the church, followers of Jesus, coming together and worshiping him and him alone and being sent back into our city to reach people who are in the darkness and bring them to the light that is the salvation of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And I'm afraid that so many of us are unaware of this battle or have fallen asleep at the wheel. Some of you are extremely aware of the spiritual battle that is waging because you have linked arms with the kingdom of darkness and made a home there, or let it make its home with you. This is not a game. There is a battle waging. I was trying to think of a title for this sermon, and here's what I had. A dragon, his demons, and a prostitute, which will make more sense later. And I realized that and thought, it's a little strong start. So I'm sitting in my house trying to think of a sermon title. And my son is really into writing his own song. So he was out in the backyard. He's just singing away. And he sings about God. It's the cutest thing ever. So he's singing about God. And then all of a sudden, this battle cry just comes out of him. And I had my phone. So I want to show you 
where I got the title for this sermon was Zeke Live from the Backyard. kid does not mess around. He's going to make a great worship leader because he knows you can just sing the same thing over and over and over and over. What my son does not fully realize in his beautiful faith is he is singing about exactly what Jesus came and did. 1 John 3, 8 says, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. What did Jesus come to do? To take out the enemy to take out his power, the power of sin, the power of death, Jesus has come to take him out. And what is his work? Jesus says it very clearly in John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That's all he's gonna do. But I have come that they or you may have life and have it to the full. He says you have a very real and present enemy and he's not a Halloween costume. I don't have time to rant about the fact that we dress up, dress our kids up as the enemy of our souls every year. He's not a cartoon character with a pitchfork trying to play a prank on you, hiding behind the corner. Here's the only things he wants to do, steal and kill and destroy. And when you look at the world around us, he's doing a pretty good job of it. The news that we're seeing, the things that are happening, the stuff we watch, we are turning serial killers into folk heroes. We love the darkness. He's just drawing us in. This is why you and your spouse fight every time you drive to church. Because there is a resistance to you knowing the truth that is Jesus Christ. It is here and it is present. And today is not about credit or attention for the enemy. He doesn't deserve that, but he does deserve our awareness. We gotta wake up. We gotta fight. We learn a lot about the enemy. We see him in Genesis chapter three when he just tempts Adam and Eve into wanting to be like God, into sin, into walking away from God's plan for them. And we live in a fallen, broken world out of that conversation. And we, see, we learn a lot about him through Jesus. The place that I've learned the most about him is in Revelation. Now, if you're new to the Bible, I would not start there. It's like uh, you're reading a Lord of the Rings book on acid. What's happening here is John, the apostle John, is getting windows into a picture of what's going on beyond this, what we don't see in the natural, the spiritual war being waged. And in chapter 12, we get the Christmas story from a totally different vantage point of the devil trying to destroy Jesus. Here's how he's described, Revelation 12, nine. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And now he's, he's going to try to destroy Jesus, but he can't. And so in verse 12, it says, but woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury. Why? Because he knows that his time is short. Because the war has been won. He cannot conquer Jesus. So what's he gonna do? Verse 17, then the dragon was enraged at the woman, representing Mary, the people of God, Jesus coming, and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. He goes, okay, I can't get Jesus, but I'm gonna get some of his people. 
I'll just go for them. I picture him like the monster in the movie when it's dealt its death blow and it's falling and just trying to tear down as much of the city on its way. Just destroy as much as he can while he bleeds out. This is why Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's very real. The disciples knew this. They watched Jesus go to bat with the kingdom of hell. And I wanna look at one of those stories. It's a wild story, probably the first time it's ever been preached for a Palm Sunday weekend in Mark chapter five, but I'll give you some context before we start reading. Jesus is out doing ministry at this point. His disciples are with him. He's healing. There's miracles happening. There's a buzz about this Jesus guy. So they get in a boat and they cross a lake. And while they're going across, Jesus is asleep and a storm starts raging. And his disciples just freak out. So they wake up Jesus and he just calms the storm. And now they're more freaked out because they go, wait a second, who is this guy? The wind and waves obey him. So they're a little unnerved by the power of Jesus. He's just shown them his power over the natural. Now he's about to show them his power over the supernatural. Now we like to think of Jesus as the lamb of God that he is, kind and meek and loving, humble. Yes, he is that. He is also the lion. If the devil is described as a lion, he looks like a cub next to the king of the jungle. Jesus is fierce. He is ferocious and he is fearless. And in this story, you are about to hear the lion roar. Mark chapter five, verse one, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Pause here. This is such a tragic picture of a human being. And by the way, this is not a parable. This is real. This happened. This is an extreme picture. This is a person who has opened himself up to let evil come in and make shop. He's naked. He's in a graveyard. He's crying out. He's cutting himself. He is a living picture of death. He's the monster to everybody in town. The good news is somebody just washed up on shore. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. If this is your first time in church, welcome. Man, you're just, you're just getting right into it. Let's look at the postures of everybody in the story. We're gonna pause here again. Look at Jesus who just walks up and goes, he's mine, you gotta go. Just like that, no fear. The demon's posture is really interesting. They see from afar and they know exactly who that is. And their response, oh crap. And they run and fall to their knees to beg for mercy. There's no trash talk here. They're not all knowing, but they know who this is. I've been, in this story, it's been so crazy to me thinking about the fact that we as human beings have the audacity to dismiss and diminish Jesus for who he is while the demons themselves will acknowledge, at least have the respect to call him who he is. Everybody's arguing about who is this man and the demons are like, we can tell you, he's the son of the most high God. That's who he is. Scripture says at the name of Jesus, the demons will flee. They just hear his name and they're like, I'm out of here. 
right? They're about to. Verse 11, a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. So really interesting response that we get here. Everybody's kind of freaked out by Jesus right now. The disciples are like, this guy just calmed a storm. The demons were terrified and all the townspeople were afraid too. There was the scariest guy in town and a guy just walked up to him and goes, you're set free now and the guy was set free. And they're like, who is that? And I think there's actually, if you look at the posture of this demon possessed man, like this healthy fear of the Lord that enters in this story. That he's sitting at the feet of Jesus with awe and wonder. Jesus actually tells us, don't fear the enemy. I think so often that we fear the wrong guy. We fear the enemy and think that he's got all the power when scripture says 490 times that the fear of the Lord leads to wisdom and understanding. Now that's not the terror that everyone's feeling of like he's gonna zap me because I did something wrong. It's awe, it's reverence, it's wonder, and it's the feeling of when a lion roars, which is beautiful and scary because you go, look at how powerful that thing is and in light of that, how powerful I am not. There is a humility in the fear of the Lord that we as a culture just don't have. But this man has it. He's just on his knees, just sitting there. Wherever you're going, I'm going. Now, Jesus doesn't reject him. He commissions him. He says, hey, everybody around here, they know who you were. They're about to see who you are. And because of that, they're gonna know who I am. So you go tell them. You go tell everybody what I've done. This man is now an evangelist going to tell the story of Jesus. The townspeople They're kind of scared, they're freaked out. This is a big day. But they're mad at him. They're angry, because he just plundered some profit. They're worried about the pigs, which a lot of us read that story and we're like, what about the pigs? Now Jesus has this knack for doing things and then not explaining himself, he doesn't have to. And so I'm gonna step aside from scripture here and just give you some commentary on some things I've read of maybe why this is how this thing went down. Sometimes we get to places in the Bible where we don't understand and we just go, I don't like it, I'm done. (laughs) Or I don't get it, I'm just gonna move to a different part that's easier to understand. Dig in, study it. I read one, one opinion is that there's a lot of mix of people groups in this region and it's possible that these pigs were owned by Jewish people who had abandoned their faith. Jews did not have pigs, those were unclean animals and it's possible that Jesus is doing a proverbial flipping of the tables going, you have abandoned your faith and you're profiting from it and that's not okay with me. There's another theory that this is Gentile territory and in this territory there's all kinds of cult worship and witchcraft and dark practices that have gotten this man to the graveyard. And it's very likely a herd of this size could have belonged to a temple. And these pigs were being used for sacrifice to false gods, for witchcraft. And Jesus goes and plunders the system of evil to point to what he's come here to do and plunder the kingdom of evil. 
Who knows exactly why he does this? What I know is we read the story and like the people, we get more worried about pigs than we do people. There's a man who just got set free and they're worried about their prophets. They ask Jesus to leave. That's what we do. When he comes and stirs our business, oh, we don't like that. Even if it's, we're sitting in darkness, we just get so comfortable in it. We love it and we go, don't come and mess up my stuff. Get out of here. Get back in your boat and go somewhere else. I'm comfortable here in the kingdom of evil. Leave me alone. We fear the wrong guy. We get mad at the wrong guy. I'm not saying you can't get mad at God. When you feel anger, bring it to him. He can handle it. He's a loving father. He will wrestle with you. I've just decided when I look out at this world and I see a world of people who may not look on the outside like this man in the graveyard, but their souls do, that makes me mad. It makes me mad when I see the news that we see. The rain that evil has right now, that makes me mad. Not at the one who came and died to set me free and bring me abundant life. It makes me mad at the one who is stealing and killing and destroying. So I'm gonna go plunder his house. I would love for you to come with me. This is what Jesus has come to do. Jesus gets accused by people because he does stuff like this. They go, you're demon possessed. That's the only way you could be doing this. And he goes, well, a house divided will fall. So that doesn't make any sense. He says, but if it is by the spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Heaven's here. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Jesus came and tied up the strong man. He won the war. The enemy's now like a mob boss under house arrest. He knows that his death is coming, his destruction, he knows. All he wants to do now is just through his powers and principalities, the demons, he just wants to work to pull as many people as he can into his kingdom before he's done. And so I wanna open up his playbook so we can plunder his house. Bring people from darkness into the light that is Jesus Christ. Before we do that, I gotta say this lovingly to some of you. I love you, you're passionate, I love your fire, you're about to run through a wall right now. I am not calling you to become a self-proclaimed demon hunter. I'm not asking you to go to Summer Moon tomorrow morning and try to start just casting demons out of everybody. I wrote this sermon at Summer Moon about about battling the devil and I go to get my drink and the girl rings me up and she goes, that'll be $6.66. And I smiled and I thought, you know what's evil in this story is how expensive coffee is. <laughs> Scripture says resist the devil and he will flee. It does not say obsess over him. And as Christians, we do this all the time. Everything ends up being about him when we're supposed to be like this man just sitting at the feet of Jesus and going to tell people about him and on our way we will encounter evil and we just tell it where to go. It's about an awareness and a readiness. That's what we're talking about today, not an obsession with the enemy. Man, if you're following Jesus, if you put your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in you, he can't, the devil can't make his home there. But he can be like a tick on a dog and make you sick and you don't even know it. More than the scary, crazy stuff like we just read about, man, the, the tactics of the enemy, they're just behind the scenes quiet. And he's at work. I'm gonna give you five tactics of the enemy and how we battle against those. And the first one is accusation. He is an accuser, that's how he's described. He leads with accusation. He comes and he says, hey, you're not enough. You think that God loves you? You've gone too far, done too much. You're the exception to the grace of God. He doesn't want you in his family, you don't belong. It's over for you. And let's just call it what it is. 
The problem is a lot of us believe that stuff because we don't know the truth. GBB, you gotta hear me. There are moments where the enemy is gonna come in and accuse you. You're done. God's done with you. You've done too much. You cannot be forgiven. There's no hope for you. And in those moments, what you have to know is the truth and say, actually, my God so loves me that he sent his son Jesus here not to condemn me, but to save me. As for what I've done, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but he lives in me. I have the hope of the world in Jesus Christ. I am a new creation and I'm an ambassador for him and I'm gonna tell you where to go now. I heard a youth student in Denver, she said, when the devil comes to try to remind you about your past, you remind him about his future. But you gotta know the truth. That's why I love that there's over 200 people in a Bible class here. You gotta know the word of God. You gotta know who God is and what he says about you and what he's done for you because otherwise you will let those accusations define you. You gotta battle accusation with the truth. Tactic number two is confusion. I'm gonna sit on this one the longest because it's the most prevalent thing I'm seeing right now. It's a confusing time. Nobody trusts anything. The enemy loves that. Jesus describes the enemy, John chapter eight, verse 44. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language for he is a liar and the father of lies. So I speak English, he speaks in lies. He just whispers them all the time. Lies, questions, deceptions. Did God really say that? He did? Huh. Like, you know that's because he wants to withhold from you. He's not actually good. He knows that you could be like him. Don't you wanna be like God? You could. Jesus is the way, really? Aren't we past that? You're gonna trust the Bible over your own intellect? I think you're smarter than that. Just little lies, little deceptions. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11, but I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So many people are being led astray. I see this so much in our faith culture right now. And I'm gonna speak pretty bluntly here about some of the beliefs that I know some of you hold. And I want you to know, man, I love you. I'm for you. I'm not here to battle with you. I'm here to battle for you, which means I have to go to bat with the beliefs that are withholding the truth of Jesus Christ in your life. There was in the early 2000s a wave of angry atheism. All these people that said, we're done with this faith thing. We're smarter than that now. There's nothing bigger going on here. This is all an accident. Nothing matters. And there is still that camp, but it has diminished in the last five or 10 years. And there's this big swing to spirituality of a lot of people going, well, I have enough awareness to know there's something going on here. You can even look at science now is pointing to that. Beautiful in one regard because people are open to faith. Some people open to faith again for the first time in a long time. The danger is in the prideful culture we live in, we wanna be the definers of it all. We wanna do it our way. There's a lot of faith that's being founded on sand. No doctrine, no people to be accountable to. You can't get the same answer from two different people that are in the same think tank. This is very common in the New Age movement right now. Universalism, these movements we see with good intention, amazing people, some of you are my friends, that wanna find truth, but are looking in the wrong places and defining it all yourself. Thinking that truth is not something out there that I align my life with, truth is whatever I say it is and everybody else can align to that. And it sounds great on the surface level, but it's creating chaos. It's robbing people, it's, it's concocting faith. 
That's what we're doing now. We are concocting our own faith, believing that we are the definers of truth. And so I wanna illustrate to you how I think a whole lot of us are going about our faith right now. Give it up for these two fine gentlemen. Thank you, guys. So, the way that we're going about concocting our faith in this culture in this time is kind of like making a smoothie. I am the divine smoothie maker. I get to decide what's true and what goes in here. It's whatever I want it to be. So let's start with there is some higher power. I don't know what that is, but let's call it the universe. Something's out there, and I'm gonna hold this kind of loose karma belief that if I put good out into the universe, good's gonna come back to me. Just hoping for that. And I'm gonna try to be a good person, so I've gotta have good vibes, positivity, good energy. And I'm also hearing some cool things from some Eastern religions. Now, I don't know the full thing, just the pieces I like. The watered-down American version of. Put that in here. I've got my politics. That's got to go in here because I know exactly how everything's supposed to run. Got some social things that I know I'm right on. Put those in there. And uh, I'm going to start to be able to manifest my reality because of this. Because I'm divine. It's all up to me. I am the definer of truth. I am going to create truth and reality. And what I'm going to do, wait, hold on a second. I am a little bit compelled by this Jesus guy. There's something about him that's drawing me. Now, I don't like everything he says. He calls himself living water. So I'm just gonna put a dash of that in here. A dash of Jesus. Jesus my way. I'll include him as an ingredient here, just kind of how I like him. And what I'm gonna do is just mix this all together. And I'm gonna pour a glass, and this is my faith. Mix together all kinds of ingredients. There's a whole lot of other things I could throw in here. And I get to be the divine shake maker. Now Jesus comes. We love him when he's chill, when he's just the hippie loving guy, right? But actually, he comes and he pours a glass of clear water and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. With incredible clarity. I, he doesn't say, I am a way, or a truth, or a life. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. This is why they killed him. They didn't kill Jesus because he was everybody's homeboy. They killed him because he came saying, I am the savior of mankind. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am not an ingredient in your shake. I am the drink. It's just me, not me plus all this other stuff. You gotta filter all the things, being a good person, all that stuff, through the lens of the gospel that is the way, the truth, and life of Jesus. Now, people say like, man, that's, that's exclusive. Jesus is the way, the only way. If you read his invitation in John three sixteen, his invitation is this, anyone who comes to me, anyone, wide open, you cannot, your sin can't disqualify you from Jesus because he's already paid for it. 
It is actually the most inclusive invitation of all time. What's exclusive are all of the deceptions of the enemy that are withholding the truth from you. Those are excluding you from Jesus. This is what's exclusive. Not the guy who came and laid his life down for anyone that would believe in him. He counters confusion with abundant clarity. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. In Revelation 22, we get this picture of eternity. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It is the kindness and mercy of God that he has given us such clarity by sending his son here and giving us his word. The kindness of God. And it's good news. It's good news because you don't have to live your life vaguely thinking maybe there's a higher power out there and I hope that I do enough that they have favor on me. You don't have to put your faith in the universe. You don't wanna put your faith in the universe and the stars because those things, they have no morality. They can't care for you because they are created time, matter, and space. You don't want your faith in the creation. You want it in the creator. Man, your destiny is not defined by the position of the stars and how somebody interprets them. Your destiny is defined by the position of the one who breathed the stars into the sky and his posture towards you is his arms spread wide on a cross to pay for your sin walking out of a tomb, inviting you and anyone into eternal life. This is good news. It's good news that, that your eternity is not staked on you being a good enough person. Your good vibes and good energy, that's great. Jesus gave off great vibes. Positive guy. Those things won't save you though. That's just spiritual language for world religion that tells you it's on your shoulders to make your way to whatever's after this. The good news is that God knows that you can't do that. That's why he sent Jesus here for you. This isn't about what you've done. It's about what he has done for you. This is good news, but man, is that shake tempting, right? It tastes sweet. It's got everything I want in it. Sugar, right? When we make a smoothie, if we're honest, we just wanna put fruit in there. We don't like the vegetables. And the sugar eventually just destroys your digestive system. But we want it just our way. This is tempting. Why? Because we get to be God here. The lie that you're being fed is that you are like God. You are created in his likeness. You are not his equal, you are his child. And you want it that way. You don't wanna actually be God because you're gonna have to make another shake next year. Eventually you're not gonna be able to even tell me what's all in this. And some of the things in here contradict each other. And so if that's you, man, I love you. Please keep coming back here. There is room for you, whatever you believe in this place. Jesus just doesn't leave room for all those things when it comes to a relationship with him. But there's room for you here. Keep coming, because I believe eventually the, the truth of Jesus Christ is going to pierce your heart, and you'll know, man, he's not an ingredient. He's all I need. He is not a, a, an ingredient in the smoothie. He is the drink. But I'd also ask this of you. If you are making smoothies, please don't make them for other people. Don't hand these out. It's not actually loving to confuse your friends with your subjective truth of today. I love you, but I'm not going to stake my faith on what you say. You can't even get out of this parking lot without wanting to fight somebody. <laughs> you couldn't explain the internet to me if you wanted to. You, you can barely stand up to cedar fever. I love you. <laughs> I love you, but I am not going to found my life on what you say because you're an imperfect, broken human being. People say, man, well, that's an absolute truth claim. Don't like those. You're also making an absolute truth claim that you know best and you're just calling it relative. And I'm not the one making the absolute truth claim. Jesus is the one who made it. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I believe him. 
I'm gonna found my life on what the guy who came and fulfilled all the prophecies of the Messiah went and did and he laid down his life willing for us and walked out of a tomb victorious over death. I'm just gonna believe him. I'm gonna found my life on Jesus and Jesus alone. This church is founded on Jesus Christ and Jesus alone, the way, the truth, the life, not a way, a truth, a life, and we will come together and continue to worship him and him alone because only he is worthy of our worship. This is not a spiritual club to just kind of think whatever we want. You can believe whatever you want, think whatever you want, but the, the groundwork of this place is that Jesus Christ is Lord and that's what we believe. Jesus is not an ingredient. This is not a self-help club. This is the church of Jesus Christ on mission to pull people from darkness into the light. Battle confusion with clarity. Number three is distraction. We are so easily distracted. And that's, the enemy knows that. It's so easy for him. All he wants to do is get you to worship anything other than Jesus. Just get your eyes off of Jesus. That's all he wants to do. And he can do that so easily, whether it's money, career, sex, romance, whatever. Get you to worship something else. In Revelation 12, we see the dragon. He tries to go after Jesus. He can't get him. So he comes for his people. And in Revelation 13, he brings these two beasts, one from the sea and one from the land. We don't have time to dig into all the commentary about this. But what they represent is him getting our eyes off of Jesus and onto other things to worship, namely politics or the state and false beliefs and false religion. Now, we just talked about false beliefs. And I don't have to make a great case to you that, man, do we love to worship our politics in the church. There are so many of us as Christians that we are more defined by our Republican culture or Democrat culture rather than the kingdom culture that Jesus came to bring. Jesus is not a Republican or a Democrat. Both of those things are right and wrong, but what they're actually is now just a tool that the enemy is using to just get us to worship those things instead of Jesus. So we gotta worship Jesus. That's how you battle distraction, with your worship of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Tactic number four is seduction. The seduction of sin that just draws you and just speaks to your flesh and draws you to it. We have the dragon, the two beasts in Revelation, and then we see this figure, this woman who's described as a prostitute, Babylon, this depiction of this seductress pulling people into sin. And John, who's having this vision, he sees her, and here's what he writes. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman. If you missed this, here's what just happened. John, the self-proclaimed best friend of Jesus, the golden boy, he gets this vision and he sees this seduction, he goes, whoo, who is she? He says he marvels greatly. And the angel goes, hey, right here. Do not let her seduce you. I'll tell you her story. She will destroy you. Man, if John is seduced by that, how likely are we to be? Sin is seductive, though. The sales pitch of sin is not, hey, let's get into this life, and 10 years from now, you'll have destroyed everything, lost your family, and you'll be on the brink of suicide. Sin doesn't sell itself like that. It goes, hey, if you want it, have it. You're this divine being, you define truth. Like, if it feels good, then it's for you. Who cares? If you think it's right, then it's right. Seduces you in. James 127 is this church rebel verse. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, I hear most people, they're like, see, we don't need all this. 
We should just be out there loving people, the least and the last, and I agree with you. That's our mission, that's our call, is to go love the people that desperately need the love of Jesus. Yes, I just don't see many people like, we need to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. I like to pick and choose in that verse. But this is what God cares about. Keep yourself from being polluted by the world. Why? Because he wants you free of the sin that so easily entangles us. So how do we battle seduction? With repentance. And I know that's a church baggagey word for a lot of people. What repentance is, it's not that when you sin, you run from God. It's that when you sin, you run to God. That you turn, that's what repenting means. You turn from the darkness that has drawn you in and you turn to him and go, no, 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 that's not for me. I need your grace today, I need your mercy. I thank you that I'm forgiven, Jesus. I wanna walk in your light, I wanna walk in your life. That's what repenting is. You keep coming back like that man to the feet of Jesus, no matter what your day looks like. You battle seduction with repentance. The last one, the last tactic is comfort. There's this book that C.S. Lewis wrote called The Screwtape Letters. It's a very haunting depiction of a demon coaching another demon on how to destroy a man. And it has things in it like this, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, with, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Just quiet, subtle, slow. You know what's more common than naked demon-possessed guys in graveyards? Comfortable people who are completely unaware and apathetic to the battle that is waging for their soul. Netflix is not a bad thing until it's the insulation that is keeping you blind to the fact that the enemy is destroying your life, not to mention your neighbors. More often than maybe the crazy, like scary movie type story that we just read, the tactic of the enemy is just like this, pacifier. Come here, shh, 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 shh. nothing to think about, don't worry about anything. You're good. I'm gonna give you this pacifier of wealth to build your kingdom and this pillow of self-obsession, and here's your blanket of social media, let me turn on the sound machine of shows so you'll scroll and stream your way into having no idea that I'm really good at killing and stealing and destroying. Shh, 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 shh. Go to sleep. How do we battle against comfort? With mission. Jesus says to his disciples after he's risen from the grave, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. You get to say that when you've conquered death. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but with the powers and principalities of darkness. We are not here to fight with people, we're here to fight for people. And what are our weapons? Love, the love of Jesus, the truth of Jesus. We've got a battle plan to battle accusations with truth, battle confusion with clarity, battle distraction with worship, battle seduction with repentance, battle comfort with mission. And we've also got a secret weapon in this battle plan and it's prayer. That's where we engage in the spiritual. That's where we're ready. We're aware and we tell evil where to go. Oh, you can't be here, not in the name of Jesus. And what do they do? They flee. This isn't an Avengers movie, who's gonna win? The war has been won, but the battle wages, and so here's what I'm asking of you today. Will you fight? Will you fight alongside us for this city, for your friends, for your neighbors? Will you fight? You're in it. You're gonna wake up tomorrow morning and go, that was crazy. Shh, 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 that was, 
That's not real. I don't know about all that spiritual stuff. Shh, 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 go to sleep. Man, this is so real. It's not hard to see if you look around the world. Will you fight? Because we're in it. One of my pet peeves in sports is when a team gets a comfortable lead and they just take their foot off the gas. Kind of get lazy and apathetic. I realize that this metaphor falls short because I told you earlier this is not a game. But they let their foot off the gas because they know they've won. And I think we do that so often as the church. Well, Jesus has won the war, so I'm gonna kind of sit back and hang out for 60 years. Hey, let's run up the score. Let's run up the score on the enemy. Let's plunder his house. That's what Jesus came to do, to destroy his work and take out the enemy. So let's go follow him into that. Let's run up the score. Would you stand to your feet? Jesus, I pray for this church. Would you give us the courage today, the awareness today, the readiness today to fight? And in Jesus' name, I pray that Red Rocks Austin, that this church, that we would be a part of running up the score on the enemy, plundering his house, Red Rocks Church, as we worship, right here, we, we wage war, we battle. All together as a family, let's run up the score.